when I lose myself, when I'm in that zone of creating something and time disappears and anxiety disappears and the ease, once you get to that place of ease, because usually I'm fighting with whatever I'm making for, for some substantial period of time. But when you are in that place of ease and creativity and timelessness, that is the best feeling in the world. There's nothing, nothing like it. You're listening to episode 11 of Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hull. Whenever I'm asked who my favorite designer is, I have to say that it's not just one designer, but rather two, Ray and Charles Eames. Of course, they made amazing pieces of design that are nothing short of iconic. I mean, in fact, you can still buy almost all of their furniture still today. And despite the fact that some of those pieces were designed over 70 years ago, they somehow managed to be even more relevant now than when they first came out, which is just absolutely ridiculous. But as great as their work is, The thing that draws me to them more than anything else was their approach to work and life. We actually have an episode that we're working on for season two with the folks at Herman Miller and the Eames Foundation that will go deeper into their life, work, approach to iteration, and oh yeah, failure. And I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you in the coming months. And speaking of future episodes... Now seems like the perfect time to remind you that if you haven't subscribed yet, go ahead and do it now to make sure you stay up to date on that and all future episodes. Anyway, in studying the Eameses more and more, one of the terms that I've come across is what they called the way it should be-ness. The way it should be-ness is this idea that you have to listen to the work that you're making that, in a sense, the work will tell you what it wants to be. And I just love this idea because it means that creativity is something that emerges through making. You work and then you listen. You make and then reflect. And I think that that idea of the way it should be-ness has been very appropriate for me in the making of this podcast. Because through these first 11 episodes... I've tried to listen to the work, so to speak, and see what it wants to become. And so from a format perspective, I'm still trying to figure out what this show wants to be. And I'm always trying out new things. So for example, last week, I tried out a new format, which was more of a lecture-style case study episode that took archival audio and unpacked the rise, fall, and evolution of Google Glass. In fact, if you missed it, Definitely go back in the archives on our website, americabydesigntv.com. Wow, that that is two plugs in under five minutes. I'm I'm pretty sure that's not the way it should be-ness for this show or for your lovely ears either, so apologies. Uh, Anyway, through these first 11 episodes, uh, it seems that the show wants to be about 20 minutes or so. You know, just long enough for you to do some half-assed cardio or maybe walk that furry little beast of yours. You know, nothing that would be too much of a time commitment. But when I started editing this episode down to that 20-minute mark, it just became immediately obvious that it just wanted to be longer form. Because today, I interview the designer, Debbie Millman. 
I got to know Debbie a little bit through our television show, America by Design, on CBS, where she and I were both presenters. And on that show, I just love her energy and enthusiasm, both for design and also for people. But in addition to being on that show, she is, of course, a highly accomplished designer, uh, an educator. In fact, she runs the world's first master's program in branding at the School of Visual Arts here in New York City. She's also the editorial director and co-owner of Print Mag. And, of course, she's the host of one of the first podcasts, you know, ever, Design Matters, that's currently going into its 16th season. And speaking of Design Matters, she just finished authoring her newest book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, which is available for pre-order now. Needless to say, we had lots to talk about. So because of that, I've decided to break this interview into two parts. The first half you'll, of course, hear today, and then the second half will be released next Tuesday. So with no further ado, here's Debbie Millman. So I was watching a talk you gave a little while back, and in it you had a slide that said, I think it was something like, you know, you had 10 years of experiments in rejection and failure. (laughs) And that's one of those slides that just so resonated with me. Uh, I also came to design a little bit late. And uh, and it was funny because my 10 years of experiments in rejection and failure actually proved to be really formative. You know, I think they made me a better designer than I had if I'd come straight out of school. And I really believe that. And so my question to you is, you know, is there anything from that sort of early days pre-designer Debbie Millman uh, that you feel like was particularly formative? Are there any lessons from that time that you feel like you brought with you? Well, I think that the biggest lesson I've only realized in hindsight, you know, wasn't going through it thinking what a great lesson this is going to be when I'm, you know, this is, this is such a formative moment. And while I am laying here with my heart bleeding, um, I'm one day going to really, really appreciate this. You know, it was, it was not that, you know, it was a street fight that I thought I was losing. Um, (laughs) so so I can only I can only say these types of things well in retrospect. Even even ten years out, I couldn't have said them with the same clarity that I'm saying them now. And it's also been augmented by my reading and learning and researching how other people have handled either rejection or what to do next after success, because that's also something that you have to think about once you achieve success is how do you, how do you hit another home run? (laughs) Cause you can't really re-engineer those successes and say, well, if I do this and this and this and this in the exact way, it's going to come out in the exact way because it's not ever the case. Uh, It's like baking a cake. You know, you're not going to bake the same cake exactly the same way, even with the same ingredients. So, I think that what I've learned over the years is that my determination in in keeping on the same path and growing and developing and continuing to push, 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 um, really resulted in my realization that I had one notch more hope than I did shame, one more notch hope for my future than I did shame at my past or current conditions. And that is 
something that came after years of, of looking back on it and analyzing it. And then really seeing and experiencing two other moments where other people's perspectives influenced my own thinking about success. So that was my sort of realization about failure and rejection. And then watching Elizabeth Gilbert's TED talk on having to confront the fact that eat, pray, love might be like the biggest success she ever has. And then what do you do after that? And and the answer is you just keep making more work without the expectation or the pressure to do it exactly the same way and with the exact same success. And, and then the third thing was, and this I've talked about before on my podcast, um, after I interviewed David Lee Roth. And when I was interviewing him, you know, I had to talk about what that success that he had in Van Halen as a lead singer of Van Halen, what that felt like, the front man of the most popular band in the world at the time. And in 1984, Van Halen was indeed the most popular band in the world and had what seemed like everything going for them. And so I asked him what that felt like. And his answer has stayed with me and I've repeated it now many, many times. Um, He said that when you get to the very, very top, of the very, of the biggest, tallest mountain that there is. There doesn't, another taller mountain does not exist in your world. Um, You have to be really careful because it's always cold. You're often alone and there's only one direction to go, you know, that's down. And he really made me understand that walking really slowly up that mountain has its value And because I felt that that's what I've been doing, I decided after that podcast episode that I didn't want to peak (laughs) until the day before I died. And so for everybody that's listening or anybody that hears this, my recommendation is to realize that if you are striving for that top of the mountain and then you're working really hard to get there as fast as possible, what are you going to do after that? Yeah. And and yes, you can maybe conjure up new mountaintops, but that's hard too. You know? So my my feelings now about self-actualization, um, I'm, I'm a bit more patient than I was perhaps in my younger years. I love that long view and being comfortable with that is, is, a, is a profound thing. You know what's funny? Uh, I was talking with our mutual friend, uh, the designer uh, Aaron James Draplin, of course, uh, the other day, and I got to spend a few hours in his studio there in Portland. And he said something like, "You know, have I already hit his words peak Draplin?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, in his typical boisterous kind of way. And this reminded me of an interview that I saw, you know, that you did with Glacier Milton Glacier a few years ago. And I didn't know the man well; I only got to meet him a, a few times. And I remember the first time that he was introduced to me, the person assumed I didn't know him. Of course I did. And, and assumed I didn't know that he did the I Heart New York logo. And of course I, I knew that. And she, the person literally introduced this is Milton Glaser. He designed the I Heart New York logo. And I don't know the man, so I don't know his mannerisms. But my, my, my take on that was this. It was like, again, I don't know the man, but it was like, I've had an entire career here. I'm still yeah, making stuff today. Yeah, and exactly. we're looking back 20 years and, I, I love the quote in the interview you had with him, and you quoted my, my favorite quote from Picasso, the spirit of it is, you know, I was a master painter by 16, but it took me my entire life, life to, to paint learn how to like draw a child. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I loved his response to that. And he said, "What you know, it's about discarding your accomplishment." Mm. And and I'm curious your I was curious your take on that. When I was watching that interview, I was like, "What what she thinks of that?" Well, now I get to ask you, "What do you think of that?" You know, here you are, you know, and we all are on, you know, are we all at peak Draplin? And maybe that's a good, a good question. And what happens when you have hit that Roth peak or the Draplin peak or a Milman or a Hall peak? Uh, what do you think of Milton's take on that of discarding your accomplishments. There's a lot of fear involved in that. Well, I don't know that I would say that I discard them, but I metabolize them. I definitely don't discard them. I, I ledger them. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's what a website's for. You know? Yeah, right. um, I, I metabolize them. And what happens is because so many people use the, the success that they have to fuel their self-worth, their confidence, their value and being alive and so forth, that is something that I struggle with. And, you know, what am I without that? And so, because I do, we metabolize all emotions. It's not just success. We metabolize grief. We metabolize feeling full after a meal. You know, we metabolize love. Um, we all metabolize our, our feelings um, in almost every way. I think the only, the only thing I think we can't metabolize is um, regret because there's no closure, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's no end point necessarily unless, unless circumstances change and then we're no longer feeling regret, but, you know, feeling full, our bodies metabolize that, that food and the feelings that those early feelings of being in love, we metabolize and, and grow accustomed to that type of dopamine, um, and success. We do the same. We, we metabolize it and then we want more. We want more just because we're humans that always want more. And so I feel less, I don't, I don't feel like that, that I need to discard them. Like they're not worthy anymore. I, I do really sort of depend on them in a lot of ways for a sense of certainty and being able to succeed at something again. You know, I, I, I believe that confidence is the successful repetition of any endeavor. And if you do something enough times and you are successful, you do begin to understand what is required, not necessarily to re-engineer the same success, but you know how hard you have to work in order to create the conditions that might allow for success. And I have always been a person, even in high school, where I was wanted to do a lot of different things and I still do a lot of different things. And I think the the con of that, the downside of wanting to do a lot of different things is that you are creating mastery or achieving mastery of those things much later than everybody else, because you're thin slicing up all the things you're doing. And because a mastery takes a certain amount of time and effort and energy, if you're doing a lot of different things, you're going to reach mastery a lot. It's going to take a lot longer. And so I think I'm experiencing that in my life now, having worked so hard at so many different things, maybe, maybe, hopefully going to achieve mastery at some point in the future, but because it's so many different things, you know, hopefully they'll hit at different times. But um, I, I metabolize the things that I have achieved and because I still have so many things that I want to achieve, I just move on to the next thing. As we've talked about on previous episodes, so many creative people have a lot of irons in the fire, so to speak. We're interested in a lot of things, and there are a lot of pros and cons that come along with being wired like this. 
you know, because on the one hand, it means that we're never bored. Uh, but on the other hand, we can, as Debbie says, thin slice our time and focus. And sometimes that can be a real detriment, always working, but never focusing and therefore never shipping anything. But I love this idea of mastery that Debbie is laying out here, that as we tackle new endeavors, new mountains of mastery emerge, each with their own timeline, staggered together over a lifetime. Therefore, making it is this continual journey and not just some one-time event, because there are multiple mountains with different amazing views. Said differently, when you combine the multifaceted fascinations that we have with a commitment to mastery along various timelines, that seems like the recipe for a good life, assuming we get the balance right. Now, I wouldn't recommend that psychologically, you know, unless you have a really good therapist helping you work through why you need to do that. <laughs> right. Because otherwise you're just hamster on a wheel and it's just unending. That's right. That's right. Um, because ultimately, however much you keep metabolizing and succeeding and metabolizing and succeeding, if you don't understand why you're sort of on that hamster wheel, it's just never going to end well. You know, you're always just going to be failing at the end of that wheel spin, depleted and and empty. Yeah. I, I love that. I love the the metaphor of metabolism too. I've never thought of it that way, but I think that's that's such a healthy mindset. There's nur- it connotes nourishment, it connotes energy. It, it's gone, but it's still enabling, or something like this. Yeah. It's really quite lovely. You know, I'm friendly with this comedian uh, Dana Gould, uh, but he he said something that I've always thought of. He's like making it is doing it, and it's and, and it meaning it's not a destination. Yeah. You know, right, it's, right, it's, right. Absolutely, I'm happiest when I'm making something. That's when the happiness is sustained. The, the happiness at achieving something, and, and I'm really, really fascinated by how long that lasts for people. And I've been doing a, a survey on PrintMag where I'm asking people, how long does it last? And it could be seconds, it could be hours, it could be days. You know, for me, it doesn't last that long. It's like, oh, great, next, what's next? And right. so the idea that we keep needing to refuel is something that I think comes from insecurity and possibly self-loathing and possibly a sense of, of lack of value. But the idea of making things when I lose myself, when I'm in that zone of creating something and time disappears and anxiety disappears and the ease, once you get to that place of ease, because usually I'm fighting with whatever I'm making for, for some substantial period of time. But when you are in that place of ease and creativity and timelessness, that is the best feeling in the world. There's nothing, nothing like it. You know, I think back, I went to design school years and years and years ago at NC State. And uh, in in the marble over the main doorway, it said virum factum. And I don't speak Latin, but I think it loosely translates to truth through making. You learn through making. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and I think this sort of fear thing we talk about in my humble estimation, a lot of it is 
people just revving in their own minds and, and creating these like ghost symphonies of in their minds, but they're not making anything. And it's just like amazing things. And the beautiful thing is when you make, it doesn't really matter if it's good nor bad. That's not really the parameter. You're just moving. You're figuring right. it out. And yeah. I think there's you're something... out of your brain. You're, you're sort of in your soul. Right. You know, and that's just so fascinating. You know, that's that flow state you often hear people talk about when time just goes away. <laughs> that's the goal. Um, but, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, with multiple goals uh, also comes multiple transitions. And, you know, oddly, transition has been a really big theme with this podcast. I think that's probably because moments of change are when we're most confronted with the potential for failure or something like this. And when I look at your career, something that I've always tried to copy that you do is how you've managed to have a natural progression. I mean, I guess it goes back to the idea of metabolism, you know, mm -hmm. right? But uh, you don't throw things away. Instead, you build one thing on top of the next and so on. You did branding, which allowed you to have a podcast, which further allowed you to figure out your sort of, I don't know, mm -hmm. curatorial voice or something like this, which further allowed you or built your credibility, which allowed you to work at SVA, which further built your credibility as an author, which gave you clout, which gave you access, which I'm sure somewhere there we can see how the dots of that led you straight to being a partial owner of print and so on. You know, that's not throwing things away. That's building on top of each of those things towards something bigger. And it's easy to look at someone like yourself who is a successful designer with a pile of accomplishments and be like, well, you know, who could ever do that? But we all have beginnings. We all started from modest places for the most part. And I'd actually like to go back to the beginning for a moment, if that's all right. Sure, <laughs> so absolutely. how did you get your start in branding and design? Yeah, I, I didn't go to school for design but when I was in college, I was the editor of the arts and features section of my college newspaper. And as editor, you were also responsible for what they then referred to as putting the paper together, which was old school layout and paste up. And so I learned on the job how to do that basic layout and paste up of publications. And that was my only marketable skill when I graduated college and went and was able to secure a job. My very first job, full-time job, was um, as both working in both the editorial department and the art department of a magazine called Cableview. And cable, cable, cable television back in the early '80s was all the rage, and so um, it was a well-funded magazine that I was both. So I ended up. My title was an editor, but I was also working in the bullpen as a very junior designer. And, and that's how I got my start in design. I'd like to thank Debbie for taking the time to share her thoughts and ideas with us. You know, I, I learned a lot from our conversation and I hope that you found value from it as well. Again, we're going to be releasing the second part of this interview next week on Tuesday. Uh, we release new episodes of Fail Hard every Tuesday. So be sure to check that out. In the meantime... If you'd like to find out more about Debbie, you can check out her website, debbiemillman.com. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this podcast is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe.
Lastly, if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, feel free to shoot me a note. Hello at willhall.co. We'll see you next week. That's the extent of my computer hood.